You made it. You braved treacherous roads and icy streets and slush. Never have the words of the beloved Christmas hymn felt so apt as they do this year in the bleak midwinter. Frosty wind made moan. Earth stands hard as iron, water like a stone. Sleet has fallen, ice has fallen, a polar vortex and a bomb cyclone have fallen. And for millions of people in this country, stranded in airports, stuck at home, snow has fallen. Snow on snow, snow on snow, snow on snow. That is not as familiar a Christmas carol, perhaps, as Hark the Herald Angels Sing or O Come All Ye Faithful, but In the Bleak Midwinter is a hymn that is beloved of many Episcopalians. We're going to sing it later on in the service, so you're going to get your chance to sing these words. These words are by the 19th century British poet, Christina Rossetti. She published uh, the poem, which she originally entitled A Christmas Carol in 1872 in Scribner's Magazine. And she, she sets out a pretty familiar December landscape for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. At one level, this is kind of like the romantic English scene of so many chintzy Christmas cards, right? In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone, snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. At one level, the world that Rossetti's poem describes could not be further from the world that the gospel writer describes. If you've spent any time at all in the Middle East, you know that snow on snow is not a typical Palestinian weather pattern, especially if we're talking about the time of year when, as Luke notes, there are shepherds living in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. That description would seem to indicate that this is lambing season, which is the springtime of the year. And there are actually a lot of contemporary scholars who suspect that a springtime or early summertime birth of the Christ child makes a lot more sense historically than in the bleak midwinter. Jesus was almost certainly not a Capricorn. I hate to break it to those of you who are. But Christina Rossetti is not interested in a historically accurate depiction of the Christmas story. She's doing something very different. She's asking questions about this story, although there aren't any question marks in that poem's first stanza. But when her words were set to music by the English composer Gustav Holst, the music asked the questions that are embedded in Rossetti's text for her. Some of you know this tune, right? You heard Katie do a little improv on it. Da 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 That's a question, right? That ends in a kind of an unresolved place. That's a musical question. And then there's an answer. Da 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 And then there's another question. Da 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 This is a deeper question, maybe a trickier question a more devious question, if you like. And then, it an and then that question gets answered, too. That musical form that Gustav Holst is using is called a double period. It's two antecedents, two questions, followed by two consequences or responses. And that, that kind of call and response form, that, that question and answer musical form, it, it's a form that shows up a lot in folk music, right? In, in dance tunes. This is actually kind of a dance tune form. It shows up in lullabies. And Holst's brilliance as a composer in setting these words is the utter simplicity of this melody, the, the way it, it almost instantly recalls the kind of tune that your, that your mother might have sung as she rocked you to sleep at night. 
It's actually a tune written, I think, with a very particular mother in mind. Holst underscores the point by naming the tune he writes after his own mother's hometown, the little English village of Cranham in East, in East London. So musically, I think Holst is asking what it means to think about God as a mother. He's not making that idea up. That's actually a deeply biblical idea. So, musical questions, musical responses, a bleak midwinter, a typically English scene on a Christmas Eve, not much to do on the surface with first century Palestine. But the questions that Christina Rossetti is asking in her poem are less about the historical circumstances of this story and much more about what it means. Right? How, it, how it translates. What does this story have to do with me, she might be saying. With me, an Italian Anglo woman of 42, when she writes these words, a devout Anglo-Catholic whose sister has become a nun, whose two brothers are leading painters and writers, a woman who has achieved something of a minor celebrity status herself. She's the, the leading female poet of her generation. Sometimes she's dismissed as a poetess, by male critics like John Ruskin, but she is beloved by many in her generation who see her as like the natural successor to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who was a big deal. Christina Rossetti is seen kind of as like a, as like a literary hermit. She's famously single. She spent the past several years of her life caring for aging parents and then working as a volunteer at a Magdalen house in Highgate, a charity for sex workers. So Christina Rossetti has seen the terror, the, the ravages of Victorian prudery around sex and sexuality, the way that, that gets enacted on the bodies of women who she's gotten to know. She's seen the beauty, the terror, the, the danger of unexpected pregnancies. And when she writes these words, Christina Rossetti has been struggling with her own health. She's come through a couple pretty significant health crises. Eventually, she'll be, she'll be diagnosed as having Graves' disease. I think her poem is asking questions not just about the meaning of the Christmas story. I think she's asking questions about what it means to be a woman in a pretty restrictive society, maybe a woman at any time in history, a woman whose body is beginning to change, a woman who we think had some pretty horrible things happen to her as a teenager. We don't know exactly what. Some historians have speculated based on her writings that she was subject to some kind of abuse, perhaps sexual abuse, perhaps at the hands of a relative. So now, 20 years later, Christina Rossetti is seen by the world as a famous recluse, an eccentric devout who can be found in the front row of her church every Sunday and publishes these pious verses about saints and sacraments. But she writes a letter to her niece right around the time that she writes this poem. She says, you must not imagine, my dear girl, that your aunt was always the calm and sedate person you now behold. She says, I too had a very passionate temper, but I learned to control it. On one occasion, she says, being rebuked by my mother for some fault, I seized upon a pair of scissors and ripped up my arm to vent my wrath. Years later, she says, I have learned how to control my feelings. I have learned how to control my feelings. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. That is not, I suggest to you, a romantic English Christmas card scene. This is a woman who has learned too well how to control her feelings. The second verse of the hymn is where some critics 
think that Christina Rossetti commits a kind of theological heresy. She writes, Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor the earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. He is too big, this God, to be contained either by heaven or by earth. And there's a famous English critic who has taken Rossetti to the woodshed for daring to suggest that heaven cannot contain God. How dare she, he writes. Clearly, this is a woman untutored in Christian doctrine. She's not, actually. Christina Rossetti knows her Bible many better than most of the old boys do. And I think she's asking a really interesting question here, which is that if God is so dang happy up in heaven, what is the point of Jesus? I think she's suggesting that Jesus coming to earth is less about humanity's sinfulness, a God who deigns to come down to our miserable level to save us from the muck. Maybe, she says, God's got a thing for the muck. Maybe God is bored up there, immortal, invisible, God-only-wise. Maybe God sees something God wants and comes down to claim it. Heaven cannot contain God, but a stable can, at least for a night. A woman's body can, at least for a season. The third stanza of her poem, it almost never gets sung, makes this idea explicit. She says, enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day a breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. That's where she finds God, a breast full of milk, a manger full of hay. She goes on to say, angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but his mother only, in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What has God to do with me, she asks. What has Mary to do with me? What has Jesus to do with me? Where do I find him? Where do I, where do I go looking for him? How do I know it's him when I find him? It's another way of asking this perennial spiritual question. How do I know that love will find me in the end? When life is a bleak midwinter, when the world is a bleak midwinter, we turn to poems that, that tell us about loneliness, right? That tell us about the narrow confines of human grief. And what remains, even in the midst of grief, is this deep longing, the longing to be seen, the longing to be loved, to be touched by love itself, a love that heaven and earth cannot contain but somehow fits perfectly inside a woman's body, a love that is sustained not by angelic worship and triumphant anthems but by intimacy and trust, breast milk, and a kiss. I think what God wants most of all is to be more to me than an idea, more than a concept, more than a theological, philosophical notion I can accept or reject at whim. I think what God longs for is a body that can be touched and that can touch. God wants skin. God wants hands and fingers, a, a mouth that can be fed with breast milk. God longs to be worshipped, but not with gold frankincense and myrrh, not with sacrifice and self-negation or pious platitudes and immaculate Sunday morning manners. I think what God wants is intimacy. What God wants is a body. God wants your body, wants mine, not our kowtowing, but our, our kiss. I mean, it's kind of an interesting question. It's a little weird. How do you kiss God? I mean, can you? You can't 
You can't kiss an idea. You can kiss a person. You can kiss a creature. You can kiss, you can kiss an icon. You can kiss a, a candle before you light it. There are traditions in other parts of Christianity where everything holy gets greeted with a kiss. We have, we have echoes of this in our own tradition. When, when the deacon comes into the congregation to read the gospel, sometimes the deacon kisses the place where the cross is inscribed on the page. I, I kiss the back of my stole before I put it on in the sacristy. That's about devotion. That's about respect. That's about love. I mean, you, you, we know this, right? You kiss the ones you love before you send them off to bed or when you greet them after a long journey. In the ancient days of the church, when we exchanged the peace, right, it wasn't with a handshake. Everybody was kissing each other, right? That was the kiss of peace. That's actually where the wedding kiss comes from, the kiss that seals two people who have made holy vows to one another. So maybe that's like the holiest thing that we can offer to one another. A kiss requires vulnerability. A, a, kiss, a kiss requires consent. It requires some careful navigation, right? You don't, you don't kiss somebody without their permission. At least you shouldn't. No, you kiss, you kiss as a way of granting permission, right? A kiss says, yes, you, we are connected. The kiss is the thing that, that wakes the sleeping one from slumber in the fairy tales, but not any kiss, right? It has to be a real kiss, true love's kiss. And love's kiss is never about taking liberties with somebody, taking advantage, you know, claiming what is not rightfully mine. That's power, that's domination, that's the kind of forced kiss that bodies like Christina Rossetti have known in our world far too often. Her body, the sight of her, her deepest shame, her greatest pain, the sight of unwanted physical advances and trauma. That body, that holy, beautiful, perfect body, navigating disease marked by death, that body longs to be kissed like a mother kisses her baby. It's her savior's kiss that Christina Rossetti waits for, I think. Gosh, my prayer is that before she died, somebody trustworthy, maybe her, her sister, a trusted companion, a mentor, or a, a mother, or a friend, I hope to God that Christina Rossetti, the pious English poet with this queer passion running through her veins, was kissed in the way her body longed to be kissed. What I know to be true, what I believe, what I have staked my vows and my life on, is that at the end, when she was gathered finally into her Savior's arms, when heaven and earth fled away as he came to reign, to take up residence inside her body, what I believe to be true is that she experienced that moment not with terror and not with pain, but as the kiss, the Christmas kiss, for which she so desperately longed in the bleak, midwinter, long ago.